0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.
1: You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton
0: School. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And I'm Sandy Hunt, and we're here. For a continuation of our show, we've had a couple of great guests this morning with a kind of entrepreneur-entrepreneur kind of Mm -hmm. focus. And now we're going to, I think, really shift to a a bigger picture approach. We're uh, frankly delighted to have on the show Anand Girardardus, who's the author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Anand, welcome.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So... um, I have to confess, I've I've watched a number of podcasts and, and listened to a lot of your discussion on this topic. It's, it's truly fascinating. Um, and I think that part of what uh, is interesting about your approach is that you are, on one hand, kind of optimistic about possibilities, but on the other hand, being very um, critical about some of the, I don't want to say duplicity, but the complexities in the way a lot of The elite and a lot of us are approaching our ability and responsibility to make the world a better place. So let's just start with that. What is the elite charade of changing the world?
2: Well, the the elite charade is what we see all around us, which is rich and powerful people, business people, uh, people who made their money in business some time ago and have billions of dollars to give away, social entrepreneurs, impact investors, Oliver um, of our and, folks, and various yeah. others of that of that type, going around telling everybody that they're out here changing the world. right That rhetoric is excuse me, I have a bit of a cough. Um, that rhetoric is, is everywhere these days. They're changing the world, changing the world, making it a better place. And that rhetoric you hear in Silicon Valley, they're disrupting things, they're building, you know, community, Mark Zuckerberg's building community, never mind that he actually, you know, was the first CEO in American history to compromise a federal election, um, you know. And, and, and you have, you know, people on Wall Street who caused the financial crisis costing millions their homes and livelihoods, reinventing themselves as, you know, the 10,000 women program, empowering women and, 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 and the literacy program, helping people be more financially literate uh, and, and all around this economy. You have all these rich people you know, saying that they're helping, giving money back, doing all these little programs, while they are building, maintaining, operating, supervising, and clinging to a set of social arrangements that predictably are intended to destroy the American dream for most people and benefit only the people on top. And the data bears this out. You know, the bottom half of Americans have not on average gotten a raise since 1979. Um, the reality of social mobility in this country is it's a thing that we read about in this country about other countries but it's not a thing that actually happens or, really in America
1: Right, or past generations here um, Right,
2: and and so we have to, you know the, the business world and a lot of business discourse is a kind of emptily uplifting hopeful discourse. Business people love to talk in this way of, well let's just talk about what we can do let's just talk about solutions and part of what I tried to do in this book is say no, 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 no You don't get away with that because the reason you all want to talk about solutions and be uplifting is you don't want to talk about complicity. The reality in this country is that the business class of this country and the super elite of this country have rigged America to make it impossible for most people to live the life of their potential and dreams. And until we change that by putting the business world back in its place, we're not going to get anywhere.
1: Now, now tell us, in terms of why you think this is the case, do you think it is a lack of perspective and true understanding about, you know, the impact they're making, unintended consequences, you know, how they're in these unconscious bias norms? Or do you think it is sort of a a conscious, I'm going to say these things, but do these things?
2: I think there's a, a spectrum. You know, um, there's a a spectrum from the kind of naive to the cunning. Um, I think the naive end of the spectrum is something you see in Silicon Valley a lot, right? Which is people who I am persuaded are genuinely convinced that they are the liberators of mankind through the algorithms and and code and platforms that they have written and built. Um, So when I go to Google or when I go to Facebook – I am aware of being in the presence of people who have a messiah complex, a kind of digital messiah complex. They feel like they have found the promised land that is going to liberate us all. And if we can just give them all the power, not tax them, not regulate them, let them build monopolies, let them do whatever they want, let them compromise our elections, they can make the world a better place. And we must ignore, we're asked to ignore all the evidence That, in fact, they're destroying the news business, they're building monopolies that asphyxiate the rest of the real economy, that there's no retail anymore on our streets because of what they're doing and their abuse of market power. But we have to ignore all this compromising our very elections and then lying about it. Um, We have to ignore all of that because we have to buy their own self-interested. But I I believe sincere on their part story that the tech tools they own are so amazing that it's going to make the world a better place. That's naivete, and that's blindness, and that's an inability to see beyond oneself. I mean, a lot of the folks in Silicon Valley, frankly, have very little social understanding, Um, and so it's not an accident that that they're a little bit um, myopic about the social consequences of of what they've built. Right, because they Um, often haven't
0: lived with the consequences of what they've built.
2: Right. Um, And as someone said very well about Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, a lot of them have just not lived on the wrong end of a power equation which is a dangerous thing when you have a lot of power. Um, and then you have the cunning end of the spectrum, um, You know where you think about Wall Street banks that do these little programs to help 10,000 women like Goldman Sachs did. That, I don't think they are fooled by their own um, dogma that they're changing the world. I think Goldman Sachs knows exactly what it's doing. I think it's motivated entirely by money. I don't think Goldman Sachs is about making the world a better place, whatever its ads may say. I think in that case, they understand that a certain amount of uh, giving back, talking about helping people, is a lubricant in the engine of continued taking. And then there's a lot of people who fall in between on that spectrum.
1: Yeah. How do we tell the difference um, as, as consumers and participants in this world, whether it's where we bank, uh, social media tools we use, brands we buy from, your, your point that it is a sort of a necessary lubricant, right, that that um, in many ways greenwashing, pinkwashing, whatever, impact washing things is what consumers today want. Uh, we see these trends. How do we tell the, the real from uh, the fake, in your opinion? What things should we w- be looking for? What measurements should be taken and reported?
2: Well, first of all, you know, I don't want to put this on consumers. I think this is too demanding a job for a consumer to do. I mean, how are you as a consumer, you're deciding whether to put your savings in Wells Fargo or or Chase? I mean, am I really expecting someone working three jobs in the middle of Louisiana to go do a month of research on those banks and what role they may have had in the Panama papers and what they lobby for in Washington? I mean, can I do that? I, I like I don't I don't think that that's practical but certainly not going to
1: happen is, right? right like it's
2: not going to happen and that is what but, but but that's what our culture says our culture says like do these initiatives and let consumers decide it doesn't hmm. work it hmm. doesn't work
1: i asked the wrong question so <laughs> the,
2: the, 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 what we need to do and the reason we actually have a government is to regulate these banks so they can't do the kinds of things um that we're talking about it's much better to just actually have banks not able to speculate in the ways that cause a financial crisis, than to ask 350 million Americans to do their homework in their private time to figure out which banks have been naughty and which banks have been nice. Uh, that is actually the job of a government. And part of what has happened in this age of market fundamentalism that we live in is that we push more and more things onto individuals. You do research on, mm-hmm. on this bank's CSR, you do this, you do that. No. It is impossible for consumers to do a lot of that stuff. It is impossible for an average consumer to tell the difference between greenwashing and a genuine. Not
1: even average. I mean, Cheryl and I are saying say, here. Yeah. This is our <laughs> bread and butter. It's what we do every day, and I'm duped left and right by, you know, brands, products. Oh, I thought this, and now I understand exactly. this, and I don't know what these words mean. And this is and what the we do professionally, yeah. um, and, no, we, I mean, and we and no we have the in tra- incredible it. fortune of having one job with healthcare.
2: Right. I mean, no, no, no bank. Um, you know, says, well, I'm about, we are about to authorize some employees to steal checking account numbers um, to enrich themselves. Right? Right. A bank will announce there was a security glitch in the processing of, you know, information, and there were compromises to the integrity, you know, and it's like, you have to do the work. No, it's like, you can't, part of this whole problem of Taking corporate virtue to the people and letting the people decide, letting it's it's essentially still having the market decide um, what is the right course is it, it is it is truly impossible for people to make those determinations.
0: and is that because of the the lack of accountability and transparency, the complexity, the lack of alternatives? what's how do how do we start chipping away at this at, at getting some solutions going here?
2: Well, first of all, and going back to the beginning, I think we have to overcome our urge, particularly in the business world, for Insta solutions. Um, I believe we have a problem in this country of capital hegemony and capital supremacy. The people who own capital, the investor class, the people who run businesses, have a supremacy over the rest of the real economy and the rest of the people of this country. And – that is not something that is amenable to a solution tomorrow. There's, not, there's nothing the CEO can do on Monday morning to use a favored business phrase about that. We've got to sit with that problem for a second. We have to think about whether we're persuaded by my argument and the arguments of others that we have these problems. And if so, we have to think about what it means to dethrone the owners of money from the ruling class of American life. Yikes. Because in the founding creed of this country – we are a country of government by, for, and of the people. And we have stopped – we've ceased to be that. We are now a country in which those with money buy political influence and outcomes. Those with money decide who can run for office and who cannot, in which those with money increasingly dominate the social sector and decide what programs get funded and what don't, um, in which people with money decide what wars we fight. Um, and and what conflicts and what our foreign policy is on many issues, and so and and now of course we have a phony billionaire, phony populist in the White House taking all these trends to a fever pitch, and using the idea of fighting for the common man to enrich himself in the White House. So we need to look at ourselves and actually think about not solutions, but something deeper than solutions, which is uprooting a supremacy and uprooting a hegemony, and. To be very honest with you, business people are not going to be the main drivers of that. Business people getting a little more woke is not going to be the main driver of that. The main driver of that is going to be the people, the people actually realizing how they have been duped, and it is happening. How, Look at well, American politics today.
1: Totally. Um, and what and, what do the people do? But I mean, voting is you know an obvious voting
2: for people who put the money power in check. Voting for politicians. I mean, Sherrod Brown yesterday, senator from Ohio talked about we probably have to break up some of these big tech companies. That's correct. That is an idea that is absolutely right that has been underserved in Washington because a lot of democratic senators who might otherwise be expected to be interested in breaking up economic power concentration are like Chuck Schumer, you know, have way too close ties to to Facebook and these other big companies. And so, you know, next time don't vote for Chuck Schumer. Vote for someone in the vein of a of a Sherrod Brown or Ocasio-Cortez who are talking about these issues of money and power concentration. And by the way, one of the hopeful things about the Trump campaign before it became the most dangerous force in American history was that even he, as a Republican, was willing to talk about a global financial and capitalist class that had ceased to have the best interests of the country at heart.
0: Acknowledging that this group existed, yeah.
2: And, and he talked about the very real tension between the interests of people who are owners of, of, of businesses and of capital and, and communities in Ohio and Indiana, et cetera, um, where the economy has, has, has really been hurt. Um, now, in his typical way, after saying something that was a little bit true, he spent you know, the next two years layering lie after lie on top of that and and using the whole thing to to enrich his own family so but there was a hopeful moment there in that on the left and the right in this country there are voters that's the important point there are voters out there who are open to the idea who believe that this country is rigged against them that things need to change fundamentally and who are open to new ideas about the proper place of business in american life.
0: This is Dollars and Change on Sears XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. We're talking with Anand Girardus, um, the author of Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world, about the mm-hmm. the complexities of thinking that businesses are going to change the world in ways that make things better while
1: not affecting anything that harms themselves. Yeah. And so I want to I'm I'm trying to take this cuz I, you know, this, this is a fascinating dialogue, and it's the kind of conversation I can find myself leaving feeling inspired and worked up and then sort of um, paralyzed with, okay, well, what do I actually do about this? Um, so we're talking about voting. Let's pull that thread a little bit more. What, you know, one of the challenges, we talk about being sort of time poor in this country. Um Where do people turn? What are they have to work two or three jobs in order to get a because you haven't gotten a raise since 1979. Um, How not you, but you, (laughs) you, America? Um, What do what what do you encourage folks to read? What questions should they be asking? You know how, in a very time crunched way, are they able to understand these complex issues in a way to be informed voters and make decisions that vote for the world they want?
2: I mean, first of all, I will say as a journalist. And this is a you know somewhat self interested thing to say for my industry, but people don't read enough. Yeah. When I go on to when I go onto airplanes and I walk, I have a seat in the back. I walk all the way down. I see 250 people playing Candy Crush. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Sad a very very and true. Here. Yep. You know, and and if you got a plane, I mean, y'all have money for those plane tickets.
1: Right, right. This is the this is an educated slice. By many and standards,
2: it, 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 a, a nation full of people playing Candy Crush when they have a little free time is a nation asking to be ruled. I'm just going to be real with you, right? If I am a would-be dictator, all I want is a population that is addicted to Candy Crush.
0: And that is circuses, my dream population: right? breads and circuses.
2: And so, we need to read as a country again. I mean, the best papers in this country have a sliver of the population of this country as their readership.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You That's know, right? and we I have think some they- amazing yeah. we we have the best media institutions in the world in this country. And so so your listeners need to subscribe to things, need to read things, need to read things every day. Can't don't wait for your Twitter and Facebook feeds to send you something viral. The viral things are not all you need to know. You need to know about what's happening in Estonia. You need to know about what's happening with voter suppression in Georgia after the big election that you may have focused on. You need to be a witness to your society and a citizen. And I think that idea in the first years of the Internet, that idea kind of fell away and everybody wanted content to be free and kind of felt like if you surfed through your Twitter feed and your Facebook feed and your Snap and this night, and you'd get a <clears throat> kind of ambient um, ambient awareness of the news. And I think that idea has now been
0: described. You've got to work at it.
2: People who don't know what's going on. Um, are asking, begging, yeah. to be ruled.
0: But see, here's the here's part of the challenge. I see is that I don't know that people believe what they read anymore, or the, or they believe it unquestioningly, right? So it's either it's either I don't believe this stuff, or, or if a, it's a, on I'll, my Facebook feed, it's true. I believe anything. Yeah. They don't trust government. I I think they almost trust business more than anything else because they're like, yeah, Facebook made my life better. No,
2: the numbers. The, I mean, if you look at the trust numbers. They don't trust anything except the military. Everything is basically plummeted. You know, Trust in government is down. Trust in the media is down. I mean, I think the media is trusted less than chiropractors. I guess there's not that many fraudulent chiropractors. Um, but to be honest, I mean, I, I encounter people who's like, well, how do I know? I mean, it's partly when you don't read the press every day. You actually don't really have the literacy for how it works. And a lot of people don't really know – what sourcing is don't really understand i mean with all due respect to people who say these things like the new york times washington post wall street journal i mean these are impeccable institutions they make mistakes every now and then but these are impeccable institutions and trust me what comes out of their mouths is 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 truer than what comes out of most most of the rest of us blabbering on it at, at at picnics about you know how the media can't be trusted so you know people need to learn to read these things and get over their own vanity about you know Um, thinking they know better
1: yeah and it seems like there's like a little bit of good old-fashioned rolling up your sleeves like it is a longer article read it like you know it you might not get all the this is coming to me in the most you know convenient way or shortened down to a digestible you know hundred and whatever characters but this is what you need to be reading and this is something you need to prioritize if you wish to change this country or this world
2: yeah exactly Well,
0: and I think it's also the, you know, we've gotten over the um, recognition of the value of research and multiple sources and critical and questioning, you know. So just because you can create a storyline in which you put together all these things and they lead to some sort of conspiracy or some sort of result doesn't mean that it's so.
1: Mm -hmm. So... Are there moments of optimism in your, you know, perspective? What are the things that we can look to and say, that's working, that's good, let's hold on to this, let's do double down yours. on this?
2: Because
1: yeah. I'm just getting sad over here.
2: <laughs> no, I, I think this is a very exciting time, and I'll tell you why. Please do. You know, about 100 years ago, we were in a moment very similar to where we are today, which is basically – you know, the, the the more empathetic way to understand our time is that it's part of these kind of historical cycles. Mm-hmm. And 100 years ago, we were at the tail end of a phase defined in you know, the gilded age defined by private creation, private daring, private striving, right? And, and there are those phases. And I think we're in another one now. And you can... Fault those phases as I am, but you're really faulting the excesses is, is, is what I'm doing. but those phases are necessary also you know the, those phases are sometimes phases of nation building of figuring out a new technology of, of inventing of um, building kind of businesses that can solve new needs in people's lives um, and those are important phases. I wrote a book about India in one of those phases and was very hopeful about what that phase did for india in that moment but then when you have these kind of phases defined by capitalist kind of extreme capitalism and and growth and um the kind of daring of entrepreneurs um you often start to to generate some problems because of the excesses of that phase of the cycle right you end up with monopolies you end up with a lot of displacement because entrepreneurs are often not the best at worrying about people left behind you end up with Um, you know, market power that needs to be dealt with. You end up with um, coordination problems of, you know, does does your railroad go through Missouri or should my railroad go through Missouri? And the two guys can't figure it out themselves, and you actually need some higher authority to resolve that. And you end up with antifreeze in medicine, as we did 100 years ago, because business people often like to cut corners. And you end up with, you know, eight-year-olds stitching shirts in factories because, Business people love nothing more than a a low-cost base. And so you get a lot out of those ages of of business growth and business expansion, but you always generate towards the end of them new displacements and new problems. And I think what we did 100 years ago is we pivoted to an age of reform. We shifted the emphasis of the age to an age defined by public striving, by public order, by regulation. We got the kids out of the factories. We got the antifreeze out of the medicine. We built the interstate highway system later on. We electrified rural America in the New Deal. We regulated Wall Street. And and all of those things were necessary and they built on the great expansion before. All of which is to say, I think we're at another such moment today. We have had this great era of market hegemony and of globalization and of tech. And it's done many great things for the world. The phone that I'm talking to you on is a truly amazing work of Mm -hmm. art that no government in history could have invented. However, we now have huge problems caused by the excessive power and the blind spots of the people who prosecuted that business revolution over the last 30, 40 years. And we cannot rely on them. They they who want to evade taxes, avoid taxes, they who don't want to be regulated, those who would continue to to mislead us into thinking that as powerful as they get is as good as our society can become. Uh, We can't rely on them to get to the next phase. We have to pivot from an age of markets to an age of reform. So, and I believe we can do that, and I believe that it's happening. When you look at the blue wave, it wasn't just about Democrats winning. It was about a new set of diagnoses and prescriptions and a willingness to take on questions at the heart of things, of power in American life.
0: And that's something we don't like to discuss much in American, because we, we sort of assume that there's, it's not that it's egalitarian, but we assume that those who have the power are somehow worthy of the power well, and deserve it somehow.
1: Right. I think there's a little bit of that American dream, but it's also like who's talking and being listened to? Right. Powerful people. Right. Right. Who's who's having podcasts and on the news and, you know, writing in a way that can be digested and, and seen by many? It's probably the powerful people. So, okay.
0: So as we kind of shift to optimism around this, is this a more a matter of, you know, Sandy and I have... We have a radio show. We talk to students all the time. Located at a business school, what's our action step? I mean, and not relying on us to change things, but we read a lot. Do we encourage more students to read a lot? Do we, you know, advocate around the issues of power a little bit more? What what can what can we do here at a business school around this issue?
2: Well, let's let's have some real talk. I think a lot of this ideology that. Has led to extreme capitalism and business and the stock market doing well while regular people suffer is an ideology incubated at business schools.
1: How does it, what does it look like? How does it show up?
2: It looks like a CEO eye view of the world, particularly those schools where the case method is taught, um, but even elsewhere. Mm-hmm.
1: And for our listeners uh, who are not familiar, these are, you know, case studies where it's a, you know, 10 page summary of here was this problem and here is this, uh, you know, storyline of a solution or something like that, so kind of looking at historical cases. That's a, a case methodology for listeners who haven't had the pleasure of going to business school.
2: In, in in my immediate family and spouses of six people, and four of them have MBAs, so I'm very familiar with the MBA. And the reality of the MBA is that it is very good at teaching people how to be more effective business people. It's very good at teaching people how to be more efficient, be good managers, et cetera. At the heart of the MBA, as I understand it, is a studied context blindness. It's about doing what you need to do as a manager, as a CEO, and it's about not asking those bigger questions about, well, if we shift to dynamic scheduling in our coffee shop chain and people now only get their schedule for Monday on Sunday night and sometimes it's 11 a.m. and sometimes it's 9 a.m., What does a single mom do for daycare if she doesn't know until Sunday night what time she's going to have to be at work? What kind of daycares would she go to? What kind of daycares would take a kid at 3 in the morning if that's what ends up being required for her three-hour commute? Oh, well, that's probably not going to be a very safe daycare. Is that really worth the 3% savings on on my cost based on my wage bill to do that? Business people – Educated and MBAs generally, in my experience, don't ask questions like that.
0: Right. I mean, there's, there's and, some small movement in that area, but, but you're right. They're, they're few and far between.
2: You know, if you look at all these companies that have done so well in our time, instead of having a sense of gratitude, they still employ tax avoidance measures like the double dutch for an Irish sandwich, okay? That is something that is encouraged in business schools. And the reality is there is no moral justification for using the double dutch with an Irish sandwich to evade taxes, wiring your money around this way, that way, creating shell companies, doing all this stuff. It is all grown. I have a part in the book where I talk to Michael Porter of Harvard Business School yep. about how a lot of the great techniques of business have overshot. They help businesses grow and be more efficient, but they overshot. And they overshot to a place where businesses now think they need to evade taxes, avoid regulation, lobby against the public interest, be monopolies, and screw workers at every cost.
0: So that they can get the most profit, yeah.
2: And and I think business schools need to actually look within very deeply. Um, And most of the people I know who who have MBAs are not bad people at all. They're they're deliberately narrow. They don't talk. They don't see context. They don't see society. They don't see power differentials. And I, I guess
1: how would they be? So yes, right. Agree, and agree with the the need for importance. What motivates them to do so?
2: I think they're not taught properly. You know, I mean, how many business schools teach the jungle by Upton Sinclair? None yeah. that
1: I'm aware of.
0: Well, and it's it's kind of interesting because my background is uh, I was an academic ethicist and then got my I MBA, was very <laughs> excited that, so. to see your ethicist come out <laughs> yeah. in this segment. So um, understanding the importance of that context, I think, is is absolutely right. I think I came into business school with a different set of of understandings precisely because I had learned the context and, and other areas first and then tried to figure out how business was a tool and where it failed, but, but you're right. I mean, I think there's often so much of a focus on getting the business the business skills, the business principles, which have been pretty focused on how do you get the most money back to your, your shareholders, and that's not going to take us very far.
2: And I'll tell you something, I mean, I'm riffing here, but when I, you know, I go to a party in New York and meet a kind of typical business guy with an MBA, just as a, as a, as kind of anecdotally, my experience over hundreds of such conversations over the years is that there is a, a set of assumptions that that, that that business person uses to kind of remain comfortable and not ask harder questions of himself and where he works, right? There's a kind of like, you know, well, of course, if you raise the minimum wage, I mean, that would reduce job opportunities.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Right? Yep. It's that kind of blustery thing. I mean, really? Like... There's actually a lot of academic dispute about that, mm-hmm. and there's ways to do it, tax credits and other things that would actually mitigate that. You know, like there's this kind of, je- you know, market fundamentalist
0: dogma. religion.
2: Yep, dogma. Um, and I think what needs to happen at business schools is, you know, frankly, people need to read novels at business schools. People need to read, you know, some of these critical studies things, you know, academic fields that people people talk about in the liberal arts, that stuff, there maybe needs to be a little less of that in the liberal arts, a little more of that in business schools. Because what that whole new discourse is about is about power, understanding how power works. And what I find a lot of people in the business world don't understand is power. I, I write about, in my book, an executive at the company that produces Cinnabons, and she talks about, you know, well, we, we're transparent with people about the fact that Cinnabons are high calories and a lot of sugar, so let them make the choices they make. It's like, well, you're kind of missing a bunch of things here. You're missing the fact that there are food deserts in this country. You're missing the fact that you get to put your your, your stores in those places. You're exploiting the fact that people in those you're places don't have a lot of You're not
1: next to a salad stand right. here. Correct. Correct.
2: Um, you're, you know, and and frankly, like products like sugar have had like favorable treatment under the government because mm-hmm. of political, political lobbying. Yep, so, yep, yep. To, to to just say, well, we we tell the people and let them decide, is to ignore structures mm-hmm. and ignore power. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think what I'm trying to get people to do is actually acquire a lens of power as they think about these decisions.
0: And and then yeah, it's it, we're kind of Sandy and I are nodding at each other, but also thinking about. Um, you know so there's there's two ways well, at least several ways to do it one is through politics getting people elected who Mm -hmm. are willing to stand up and do some of these hard decisions that will minimize the power of the corporations Mm -hmm. um that they won't do for their own because they've got no self-interest to do so Mm -hmm. and the other i mean is it's the harder one and i think it's uh challenging but to sort of think about how you can infiltrate business with this Mm -hmm. more of this awareness i mean i You know, we we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. We talk to some big corporations. None of them are pure and perfect, but I think there are some that are more aware of these issues than others and are trying to uh, address them in some ways, but still they're within this context of uh, uh, an environment that really advocates for power.
2: Uh I mean, I often get this question from folks in the business world, which is basically, should I... If, if I'm unhappy with the kind of moral fiber of my company, should I quit or should I stay and change it from the inside? Right? Which is an age-old dilemma. There's this old Albert Hirschman book, Exit Voice and Loyalty, that kind of grapples with this question in a different context. But I think one of the things that I observe is that people ask that question, and they then choose to stay in their companies, but they don't really challenge anything.
1: Right.
2: And so the way I think about it is your choice is if it's important to you to not be compromised. And you don't want to make a big thing and risk your you know, your whole thing. Just like get another job. Do something else. If you're gonna to stay to avoid being complicit, um, you have to use your voice.
0: And that comes with a risk. Things. That comes with yeah, absolutely, it comes with a an existential it risk. risk. It comes yeah. with
2: a huge risk. Yep. But, you know, I mean, virtue always does.
0: And that's a, I think that's a, a great way for end, us to end this segment. It's Don't been... make us end. <laughs>
1: this is
2: fascinating.
0: <laughs> well, we'll have to get you back on campus at some point. We've been talking with Anand Gurdardis, author of uh, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, with um, a lot of thought-provoking thoughts about business and what we need to do to sort of change the structure and the power and not just be complacent.